If you have your Bibles today, we are going to be looking at the 18th chapter of the book of Joshua. And again, I know the temptation to look at these sorts of things and wonder what can we draw from this when we see kind of just some names and some very historical matters that are going on. What do we see that will be applicable to ourselves? Well, let me assure you there are things here. The Bible wasn't written just so that we can read the history of it and learn some, or, and to know something of the historical events that took place in times past. By the way, true historical events. But it's also given so that it might be a pattern to our lives. That we might see our sins. That we might see the pathway that we ought to walk. And that we might be faithful unto the Lord in these things. So there are things that we can learn then from this chapter. I'm going to handle a little bit differently than I have been in the last few weeks. I'm actually going to take sections, describe them, uh, give the lessons, and then move on to another section in this chapter. So let's begin this morning by looking at chapter 18. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, first of all. Verses 1 through 7 of the book of Joshua, chapter 18. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there. And the land was subdued before them. And there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? Give out from among you three men of each tribe, for each tribe, and I will send them, and they shall rise and go through the land and describe it according to the inheritance of them, and they shall come again to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall abide in their coast on the south, and the house of Joseph shall abide in their coast on the north. Ye shall therefore describe the land into seven parts, and bring the description hither to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. But the Levites gave no part among you, or have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So we see in this section here that Joshua has a plan for the remaining tribes that need to go in and take, or actually already there, and take possession of the land. And you notice in verse 1, they assemble at a place called Shiloh. Uh, this may not be that familiar to, to us, but this is the location that actually will become very important for the next couple of hundred years unto the people of God because this is the place that God, for this period of time, has chosen to place His name. This will become the place of public worship of God. And so it's here that God will then meet with the people of Israel. God had told Moses previously back in the law that there would be a day that would come that he would choose a place in which the people of God would worship him, the place where they would bring their sacrifices, the place where they would bring their offerings and that sort of thing. And this was the place then that God would accept of the offerings and the sacrifices of his people through the Levitical priesthood. This was the way that they worshipped in the Old Testament. So already we see here from this then something of the concern that God has for public worship of His name. Brethren, this isn't just something that we gather together to do because we need something to do on the Lord's Day. 
We gather together because this is the command of God. We gather, we forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, because we see it commanded from Scripture. Also, when we think of the city here or this location called Shiloh, actually it's a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a type is something that you find in the Old Testament that is a figure or kind of like a picture, and it represents something. Well, what does Shiloh then represent? Well, it represents Christ, where He is the place where God's people assemble. It is the, as it were, the house of God. It's where we come together. But more particularly, it's actually our spiritual gathering into Him. You and I, brethren, as Christians, are in union with Jesus Christ. And we're going to go back to the book of Genesis, or I will anyway, chapter 49, and we see a prophecy that was given to uh, this tribe here through uh, uh, Jacob in order to let them know something of this very thing about this city. In Genesis 49, verse 10, we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. So he's speaking to the tribe of Judah here, which, of course, Christ comes from this tribe. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now we see here, it's not just a place that Shiloh represents here in verse 10. But you'll see there the pronoun in verse 10 there. It says, Shiloh come and unto him. That is, unto Shiloh, or this person, Shiloh, shall the gathering of the people be. Well, what is that? Well, we know from the Scripture in the New Testament, just for one place in particular, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 10, this place is none other, this Shiloh is none other than Christ Himself. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 10, it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, Remember the, the text back in Genesis that they will be gathered unto him, that is, unto Shiloh. Well, who is truly Shiloh in the ultimate sense? It's not just the place where we worship, not just the place where they worshipped in the Old Testament, but it is Christ. Brethren, this is where we meet God. If you have ideas that you can somehow meet God outside of Jesus Christ, then you are not worshiping Him according to the Scripture. In fact, there is no way that you can honor God the Father at all apart from Christ. And I realize there are people who want to go through Buddha, they want to go through uh, Muhammad and all those kinds of false religions that are out there. And uh, I assure you, they have nothing to do with Christ. They have nothing to do with the Father. Because it is only through Christ that God is, as I can say very loosely here this morning, that God is reached. Jesus said, I am the truth and the way of life. No one cometh to the Father but by me. So it's only through Christ that we can come, and that only by faith in Him. We also see in this section back in chapter 18 of Joshua that the people of God seem to be a bit slow about the things of their inheritance. Notice again, in verse uh, 3, actually verse 2 and 3, And there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord 
God of your fathers hath given you. There are seven tribes. Remember, there are twelve tribes altogether. And seven of these tribes have not yet claimed their title. And so to remedy this, as we see in the remainder of this section here, that Joshua tells them to pick out three individuals, three elders from their tribe, from their families, and then these are to go out and they are to survey the land. They're to go through the land of Canaan and their borders are to be what? Uh, Joseph on the north and um, Judah on the south. And they were to go through those, that section then of land and they're to survey it, as we would say in modern terms today. And then notice here, they were to give a description of this land. He reminds them here, though, that the Levites, they're not to get an inheritance, and that Gad and Reuben and already the half-tribe of Manasseh are not to get this because they've received some of their inheritance on the other side of the Jordan. Now, this is not the first time he's told them this, is it? In fact, he has told them this very thing about, look, Reuben's got his, Gad has got his, and the half-tribe of Manasseh's got theirs on the other side. This isn't the first time that he's told them. Nor is this the first time that he's reminded them that uh, Levi is not to have an inheritance among them. Now, why does he keep bringing this up? You know, you repeat a matter, either because you're aged and you don't know you repeat a matter, or you repeat a matter because it's important. That's why, in, in, uh, I'm sure as parents we know that we have to tell our children over and over and over again. Not only because they forget but also because the things that we want them to listen to are very, very important. So what's the importance of continually telling the children of Israel that Gad and Reuben and Manasseh already have their, our half-tribe of Manasseh, have already got it and, uh, and keep telling them about Levi and he's to be this. Well, there's a couple of reasons, I think. Well, first of all is to show the promise fulfilled. Remember that they were to go in and take this land. Well, there are some brethren who have already done so. And so he reminds them again, look, this is a promise that God has kept. And brethren, here's the issue here. We can trust God. We can believe His promises. We can believe His Word that it's true. We're not walking around today holding Bibles that are full of errors, despite what the world may tell us, despite what the drunk at the bar tells us. The fact of the matter is, the Word of God is true. And every promise and every threat that we see and every curse that we see in God's Word, let me remind you this morning that it's true. And God is going to be faithful. And He's going to fulfill what He has promised or what He has cursed upon this world. So this is why He reminds the children of Israel, Look, I am a God who keeps my promises. I'm a God who has sworn by an oath and there are two immutable things. And one of them is God cannot lie. You may, but God doesn't. The second thing we learn to this is to remind them so that they would be thankful and content. If you go over there, not that we ought to go over there, you don't have to go see the quote holy land in order to grow in grace and knowledge and that sort of thing. There are that kind of crowd that think that. But I assure you, the Word of God is sufficient. But if you were to go over there and you were to see the land of Canaan or the land of Israel, not so much as you see today, but the original boundaries that they had, it wasn't very big. 
It was actually a very small land area. Just a little chunk over there in the, what we call the Middle East today. But God said, look, that's enough. That's what you're going to get. And it ought to suffice you. So God is reminding them here of what they are going to have and what they've got already through these two and a half tribes. Is that to remind them, you need to be very thankful that I've given you a land that you don't have to till. You're going to take houses that you didn't build. You're going to be plucking from vineyards that you didn't plant. I am giving you all of this freely. Not because you're so obedient. Not that you're so abundance, abundant in your life. But because I am a gracious God. And they received all of that freely. And one of the things he warned them of is that when they get in that land, they're going to become fat. They're going to become lazy. And they're going to forget. And they're going to be very unthankful and very discontent. And isn't that just like American Christians so-called today? We're very fat. We have a lot. And we're very unthankful. And we're not very content. And that goes for us here. We're not immune to this. Every day we fight the sin of being discontent and not being thankful. We can hardly say thank you to anyone unless it's somehow uh, making us look good or feel good. We ought to be a thankful lot for what God has given us. Then let's look at verses 8 through 9. We see their obedience. Remember, Joshua sends says, Now you take three men from each tribe and you go do a little survey here. Well, that's what they do. And the men arose and went away. And Joshua charged them that went to describe the land, saying, Go and walk through the land and describe it and come again to me, that I may here cast lots for you before the Lord in Shiloh. And the men went and passed through the land and described it by cities into seven parts in a book. And came again to Joshua to the host at Shiloh. We see here the immediate obedience from these uh, elders or these men from the uh, tribes to Joshua. We see that they obeyed this leader, Joshua, who has taken them from the land of the heathens on the other side of Jordan into this the land of some more heathens that they need to be conquering. They obey this leader. And in this then, we see something here of the excellent character or the exact excellent example of obedience. Submission. Obeying. I think we all know what those words mean, don't we? But boy, we don't like them. We just don't like someone else telling us what to do. I suppose that's a hard one. If, if contentment is hard, how about submission? It's very difficult, isn't it? And brethren, we live in a time where authority means little. And that includes whether we think of it in the civil aspect, whether we think of it in family government, or whether we think of it here in our church. Ecclesiastical is the big fancy word. Ecclesiastical obedience. Obeying those who have been placed over us. When every sphere of our lives, authority doesn't mean a whole lot to folks today. 
And there is this inordinate desire for freedom and independence from the young all the way to the adult. We have a nation that's racked full of it. I've got my rights. I've got my freedom. I've got my independency. And if I don't have it, I'll take it. It's an inordinate desire to do what pleases me rather than what pleases God. Or for that matter, what pleases others in a right sense. You know, we're to be servants one of another, aren't we? But there is this inordinate desire. And folks will use anything to get out from under it. Conscience. They'll scream, I've got liberty of conscience. Telling someone to obey the Word of God is not a violation of a man's conscience. You understand that, I hope. But it's amazing how fast we can, we can let that flag go up in our minds. My conscience. Your conscience is to be submitted to the Word of God. And according to the Word of God, you're to be in obedience to those who are over you. That's where your conscience is to be. We'll use the idea that, well, I'm no man's master. Or, excuse me, no man's servant. Master, I've got that wrong. We're no man's servant. Well, in a sense, that's true. But in another sense, we are to serve others, are we not? But you know what? This is not to be the mark of a believer that he desires inordinate liberty and independence. Believers are known by several things. One of those that stand out throughout the whole Word of God is obedience. I, we know that we are the, we know that we know that we are the children of God when we keep His commandments. That's what the Bible says. Of course, we say, well, I know that I know because I know that 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 I'm a Christian. Just I know it in my heart. Nowhere is that in the Word of God. What you do find in the Word of God is that we know that we know when we keep His commandments. But unfortunately, obedience, submission, obeying have become almost like a dirty word in our society. Brethren, these words should not be dirty in the Christian's vocabulary. In fact, anything, they're wholesome words. And what do we find these men doing? They obey and they obey immediately. And they didn't go out and do what they wanted. They weren't half obedient. They were complete and whole obedient to the things that was given to them. Secondly, in this, we see the carefulness of their obedience. This was another characteristic of obedience. Not only they did so immediately, not only they did what they were told, but they were very exact in it. Now, how do I know that? How do I know from the text that they were exact in that? Think about it. Look at it. Look, they recorded in a book so that it can be seen what they did. This was their survey record of what they did. And so it was exact. It was a carefulness in their obedience. How many Christians, how many of us here today are sloppy when it comes to obeying God? Just out and out sloppy. You know, there is a principle in Ecclesiastes, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Where is that in the Christian walk? 
We may do it with our callings. We may do it in our other things of, of uh, necessity and nature as far as we're concerned. But brethren, when it comes to God, should that not be first and foremost? Whatsoever thy hand finds to do, do it with thy might. That's what we see with these men here. And then thirdly, from verse 10 down through verse 28, we're going to have to hurry. And I'm going to have to try to get through these names. Uh, let's read verses 10 down through verse 28. And we'll draw some application from this as well. So here we go. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land unto the children of Israel according to their divisions. And the lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin came up according to their families. And the coast of their lot came forth between the children of Judah and the children of Joseph. And their border on the north side was from Jordan, and the border went up to the side of Jericho on the north side, and went up through the mountains westward, and the goings out thereof were at the wilderness of Bethaben. And the border went over from thence toward Luz, to the side of Luz, which is Bethel, southward, and the border descended to Atarothadar, near the hill that lieth on the south side of the nether Bethhoron. And the border was drawn thence and compassed the corner of the sea southward from the hill that lieth before Beth-horon southward. And the goings out thereof were at Kerjath-baal, which is Kerjath-jerim, a city of the children of Judah. This was the west quarter. And the south quarter was from the end of Kerjath-jerim. And the border went out on the west and went out to the well of waters of Nethtoah. And the border came down to the end of the mountain that lieth before the valley of the son of Hinnom, and which is in the valley of the giants on the north, and descended to the valley of Hinnom, to the south of Jebusai, on the south, excuse me, the side of Jebusai, the south, and descended to Arogel. And was drawn from the north, and went forth to Eshemish, and went forth toward Gelioth, which is over against the going up of Adunam, and descended to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben, and passed along toward the south over against uh, Arabah, northward, and went down to Arabah. And the border passed along to the side of Bethhagla, northward, and the goings of the border were at the north bay of the Salt Sea at the south end of Jordan. This was the south coast. And Jordan was the border of it on the east side. This was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin by the coast thereof round about according to their families. Now the cities of the tribe of the children of Benjamin according to their families were Jericho and Bethhagla and the valley of Kenziz and Betharabah and Zimaraim and Bethel and Abam and Para and Ophrah and Kephah, Hermoni and Aphni and Geba, twelve cities were their villages. Uh, Gibeon and Ramah and Beeroth and Mizpe and Kephira and Moza and Recham and uh, Irphil and Tara and Zelah, Eliph and Jebusai, which is Jerusalem, Gibeath and Kerjath, fourteen cities were their villages. This is the inheritance of the children of Benjamin according to their families. Okay, well, what do we see here? Well, we see a division given then to at least one of the tribes here. and This is the tribe of Benjamin. So we see from this that their lots are cast 
And so the land here is divided up. You say, well, why is all of this here? Big deal. Well, it would be a big deal to you, and it is today. That's why when you buy a house or you buy some land, what they will do is come out and they will survey your property. And then that's registered downtown and that it's kept on public record so that everyone will know where your boundaries are. So, this is nothing new. In fact, it's very important. The United States, for instance, has boundaries that we defend to the T. And so, people lose their lives over boundary marks. So, suddenly then, this doesn't seem not so silly, does it? When you look at it in light, we're still doing the same thing today. So, we see it here in the biblical sense with uh, at least the tribe of Benjamin at this point in the coming chapters will see the remainder of the six tribes being given theirs. Now, one of the things I want us to notice here and we'll spend some time with is the fact that you notice that there were some lots cast. Lots. And so thus, from the lots then, we see the division of the land. Now, I'm not going to defend nor am I going to deny the use as lots as we see it used in the Word of God or from Scripture, and whether it's to continue as far as today is concerned. Some would see as it, it is a standing ordinance, that is to cast lots to decide matters. Uh, some see it as a standing order even in the church today. Ames, you remember, who was a Puritan divine of the 17th century, has a book called The Marrow of Divinity, and there he defends the idea that uh, lots are to be used even for the church today. And he, by the way, he was very influential in the thinking of the New England Puritans there in the 17th century in our own country. And by the way, for our theology class, for the young men, we do use uh, uh, Ames's marrow of divinity. So there's still some importance to that. Well, be that as it may, whether we think lots are to continue or not, that's not what I'm going to discuss. What I want to show us here is what does the casting of lots have to do with anything? For those who may not be familiar with what casting lots mean, we would think of it similarly as like, sort of like gambling almost. We would take, I'm just going to use this as an example, so please don't go run raggy here with this and uh, catch me after class and say what a big loser I am about all this. I understand. We don't know exactly how the lots went. But we're going to, remember the other day or a few weeks ago, I used the idea of the dice. You take up two pieces of dice and you throw those dice and there's numbers on the dice and those numbers are going to come up. The, um, the dice are so manufactured that we're, there's, there's, it's square. And so they will land and then they will tumble a moment and then the numbers or the number of the dice will show up. You have, we went through the snake eyes, the box cars, that sort of thing and uh, you, that's just how they play dice and you can do it in an evil way, I understand that. You can also just do it uh, just to see how it works and so that sort of thing. So I'm not here to defend even that, so don't get all over me about that, please. I'm just showing the example of what it means to cast a lot. You throw the dice out and whatever comes up will be the number on those dice. And that's the way that it was used in Scripture. And in the Bible, we see that the casting of lots was a way in which we see that things were determined. For instance, here. Who's going to get this land that's just south or just north of uh, Judah? Well, he does whatever he does, throws dice, chooses the lots, whatever the case may be. And that lot then cast will determine that. But in reality, it's not just throwing the dice out and it comes up where it will. 
Do you know who's really behind all of this? If you were to throw dice this morning and you came up with two or snake eyes, do you know that is something that is predetermined by God? So, surely not. Oh, absolutely. Everything has been determined by God. Some of you who are sitting in the particular seat that you're sitting this morning, you really believe that's by accident or by your silly choice? Actually, God from all eternity picked it out for you. So I don't believe that. Well, then you don't believe a major portion of God's Word. Let's just put it down to that. You are an unbeliever. Because this is exactly what God, the Bible teaches. That God is such a God that He predetermines the actions of men. It's all in His divine plan. It's all part of His decree. Even the greatest and the most saddest thing that has ever taken place on this planet, and that is the death of Christ, took place by the predeterminate counsel of God. That's Acts. He tells us that in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost lets the Jews know that all this didn't happen by accident. It wasn't the sin of men just becoming overraged and no one can control it. This was part and parcel of the predeterminate counsel of God. So yes, the simple rolling of dice then is in God's control. The Bible tells us, for instance, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, and verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. This is what he's talking about. The lot is cast into the lap. But the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 33. Who is it disposed of? By the Lord. So what do we learn from this then? Well, first of all, we learn that God's sovereignty is really in control of all events. He has predestinated all things after the counsel, the Scripture says, of His own will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Look it up if you don't believe it. Ephesians 1, verse 11. Everything's been predetermined and carried out by the determinate counsel of God. Nothing too small, nothing too large. Even the, the Scripture says even the very heads, a hair of our heads are numbered by God. He knows it all. Secondly, as we note, it was used as a guide. It was used as a sense of determining events, uh, discernment. Who's going to take the place of Judas, the church asks. Two men are set forth. And then what takes place? In Acts 1, the lot is cast and it falls on Matthias. Was that of by accident? No, it was of God. And so this was a way in which determination or discernment was made. And I don't think that's how we do it. I think now we have the scriptures to guide us. And so the Bible then is the revealed will of God. It's complete and it's sufficient and it's accurate and it's infallible. In the Bible, the lot settled the matter. Scripture settles the matter. Does, God, does God's Word teach predestination? You bet it does. Why? Because the Bible predicts it and says it. It's a done deal. The lot was cast thirdly, and where it landed or whatever it decided was it. There wasn't, well, let's do two out of three. 
You know, I don't like I like the first one so much. So let's do it again and then again, and that will determine it. No, the lot was cast, and that was it. It was final. And thus they were to be satisfied with their lot. Benjamin couldn't say, now look, let's do this over again. I don't really like that portion of the land. There's too much land to clear, too many trees, too many enemies. So don't give me that one. Let's roll the dice again. No, that was it. Here again, we go back to this point that we are to be satisfied, brethren. We are to be content in our lives where God has put us. The timing of it, the conditions of it, the callings, yea, even the boundaries that we face. All of that's from God. Last time, you remember, we spoke of the boundaries in Scripture regarding women. There are certain things women are to do, and there are just certain things women are not to do. I didn't decide that. God's Word did. God's Bible did. Women, as we showed, are not to speak in church. Women are not to be pastors. These are boundaries that God has set up. And we're to be satisfied with it. It isn't, well, let's get us another Bible, let's rewrite it, and let's do it again. No, we remember the one that we have, and we seek to obey it. And this will tell you whether you're a believer or not. This will tell you whether you're of God or not. Are you going to obey the boundaries that He's set for you? Children, parents, husbands, wives, the worker on the job. All of this... God has something to say about it. Are we going to be content and satisfied with it? Or will we go our own way and be disobedient?